0: Hello, and thank you for stopping by. In this segment, I'm going to discuss the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. The First Amendment is often referred to for freedom of speech, religion, the right for protests, and even freedom of the press. Those assumptions are not entirely inaccurate. However, there is much more to it than the blanket approvals many people assume it represents. Since the United States is a country governed by the rule of law, it is important to understand the Constitution at a greater depth. To start my discussion, let me offer you the exact language as the amendment was originally written and ratified. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people, peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, before I get too far into the discussion, there are some important things I want to emphasize. First, the First Amendment was put into place as a protection to the people, not as a means to subvert other laws. In other words, although someone is protected under one law, doesn't mean they are exempt from negligence or harm they cause, or potentially could cause. Way too many people use the First Amendment as a shield. If you act within the scope of your protected rights, but cause harm to someone else or infringe upon the rights of other people's personal freedoms, you are accountable and can face civil and criminal charges for your intentions, perceived intentions, and even your negligence. And your ignorance in that respect does not guarantee your innocence. It is also important to understand that the laws in the United States are not black and white in many cases. Much of our laws and accountability is based upon interpretations made by the courts, or case law. In short, this means that judges often refer to previously decided cases to ensure both judicial economy and continuity of the law. During my discussion on the First Amendment, I'll cover some of the important case law as well. This will hopefully explain things a bit more thoroughly. I'm going to start with the first part, which states that "...Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof." Taking the most basic approach to the freedom of religion protection when looking at the First Amendment, we can see that the primary purpose is to keep the federal government from becoming excessively involved in Americans' religious affairs. And more or less, this attempts to prevent the government from establishing a national religion and it keeps it from favoring one religion over another. Freedom of religion goes a bit deeper as far as law is concerned, and with the ratification of the 14th Amendment, state governments were umbrellaed into these restrictions. But I'll not get into too many details on the 14th Amendment in this broadcast. You can find a link on my blog at realintelreport.com if you wish to further investigate for yourself. I provide plenty of links there. The other part of the First Amendment concerning the free exercise of religion is not absolute. The Supreme Court ruled in the case of Reynolds v. United States, 1879, that laws are made for the government of actions, and while they cannot interfere with mere religious belief and opinions, they may with practices. This case revolved around the issue of polygamy, a religious practice that went against federal law. The court upheld the criminal charges being contested by the defendant in the case. A similar opinion was offered in the case of Davis v. Beeson, 1890. The court reasoned that allowing religious practices that broke federal laws would set a precedent that would open the door to other practices such as human sacrifice or other extremes. It is important to note that in the case of animal sacrifices, for instance... For religious purposes, the Supreme Court has upheld those rights using the First Amendment as a means of protection in some cases. As an example, you can refer to and I may get this pronunciation wrong, but it's the case is Church of the Lukumi, Babalu I versus City of Hilea, 1993, and the other case, Jose Merced, President Templo, Yoruba, Oma, Orisha, Texas. Incorporated, v. City of Ulysse, 2009. The overall opinion of the Supreme Court, let me put that into the words of Justice Anthony Kennedy, stating in the decision that religious beliefs need not be acceptable, logical, consistent, or comprehensible to others in order to merit First Amendment protection. There are many other cases and issues relating to religion, such as religion in schools, religion at work, prayer in school, the Pledge of Allegiance, and so forth. I'm only going to discuss the basic protections of the First Amendment in this broadcast. I will, however, continue to provide links for your further research at my blog. Now, the next part of the First Amendment reads, Or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. This is probably one of the most misunderstood protections of the First Amendment. Quite often, people with the most derogatory and defamatory things to say use the First Amendment as a shield against liability on their part. Even though we, as Americans, are free to voice our opinions, we do not have blanket approval to cause harm to others, nor do we have blanket approval to use our voice to spread false statements or rumors without consequence. We may be free to speak out our mind, but if in doing so we infringe upon others' freedoms and protections, even without intention, which is known as negligence, we remain accountable, both civilly and criminally, depending on the harm caused. In other words, I'm free to publish a story about someone, or a business, and I'm free to say whatever I want to say in that regard. However... If as a result of my words that person, or those people, or that business suffers harm, directly or indirectly, I may be liable for damages, or even criminal charges. To simplify some more, the courts have laid out some exclusions to free speech. Defamation, invasion of privacy, obscenities, copyright and trademark violations, inciting riots, inciting others to break the law, threats, threats of violence, inciting violence, endangering national security, false advertising, and in certain cases, speech that causes obstruction or disrupts others' lawful activities. Here are some cases which better exemplify the scope of this protection under the law. Debs v. United States, 1919. Eugene v. Debs was an American labor and political leader and a five-time Socialist Party of America candidate for the American presidency. On June 16, 1918, Debs made an anti-war speech in Canton, Ohio protesting U.S. involvement in World War I. He was arrested under the Espionage Act of 1917 and convicted, sentenced to serve 10 years in prison and to be disenfranchised for life. The case against Debs was based on a document entitled Anti-War Proclamation and Program, showing that Debs' original intent was to openly protest against the war, The argument of the federal government was that Debs was attempting to arouse mutiny and treason by preventing the drafting of soldiers into the United States Army. This type of speech was outlawed in the United States by the Espionage Act of June 15, 1917. Another case is the New York Times v. Sullivan, 1964. To protect uninhibited, robust, and wide-open debate on public issues, the Supreme Court held that no public official may recover damages for a defamatory falsehood relating to his official conduct unless he proves that the statement was made with actual malice, that is, with knowledge that it was false, or with reckless disregard, or whether it was false or not. The court stated that the First and Fourteenth Amendments require that critics of official conduct have the fair equivalent to the immunity protection given to a public official when he is sued for defamatory speech uttered in the course of his duties. Another important case is Gertz v. Robert Welch, Incorporated, 1974. The court applied the rule in the New York Times case to public figures, finding that persons who have special prominence in society by virtue of their fame or notoriety, even if they are not public officials, must prove actual malice when alleging libel. Gertz was a prominent lawyer who alleged that a leaflet defamed him. Another important case was the FCC versus Pacifica Foundation in 1978. In a case that considered the First Amendment protections extended to a radio station's daytime broadcast of comedian George Carlin's Seven Filthy Words monologue, the Supreme Court held that Section 326 of the Telecommunications Act, which prohibits the FCC from censoring broadcasts over radio or television, does not limit the FCC's authority to sanction radio or television stations, broadcasting material that is obscene, indecent, or profane. Though the censorship ban under Section 326 precludes editing proposed broadcasts in advance, the ban does not deny the FCC the power to review the content of completed broadcasts. In its decision, the court concluded that broadcast materials have limited First Amendment protection because of the uniquely pervasive presence that radio and television occupy in the lives of people and the unique ability of children to access radio and television broadcasts. Another case, American Library Association v. United States Department of Justice and Reno v. American Civil Liberties Union in 1997, in a 9-0 to zero decision, The United States Supreme Court on June 26, 1997 declared unconstitutional, a federal law making it a crime to send or display indecent material online in a way available to minors. The decision in the consolidated cases completed a successful challenge to the so-called Communications Decency Act by the Citizens' Internet Empowerment Coalition in which the American Library Association and the Freedom to Read Foundation played leading roles. The court held that speech on the internet is entitled to the highest level of First Amendment protection, similar to the protection the court gives to books and newspapers. Now these are just a few cases, there are plenty of other cases heard by both the Supreme Court and many courts throughout the country. I'll put some links on my website for you to research further if you want to. Now I want to move on to the freedom of press. As most of you are aware, the media has evolved into more of an entertainment venue rather than an actual journalistic press corps. Much of the mainstream media provides stories that are misleading, inciting, and in some cases completely fabricated. For the most part, the media remains protected by the First Amendment, since courts generally look for intent or actual malice, which is very difficult to prove. As an example, you can look at a popular case of Hustler v. Falwell. 1988. In this case, Hustler, an adult magazine, published a story about a prominent minister. I won't detail the published article, but Falwell sued for libel, invasion of privacy, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Initially, the court ruled in favor of Falwell, but an appeal reversed that decision, stating that Falwell failed to prove that the offending publication contained a false statement of fact which was made with actual malice. The court added that the interest of protecting free speech under the First Amendment surpassed the state's interest in protecting public figures from patently offensive speech, so long as that speech could not reasonably be construed to state actual facts about its subject. Now, another important case along these lines to consider is Milkovich v. Lorraine Journal, 1990. I won't get into all the details, but I will summarize the court's decisions for you. First, the court declined to even hear the case twice before finally accepting it in an effort to clarify once and for all the extent to which opinions could be expressed without fear of being held libelous. The Supreme Court ultimately rejected the argument that a separate opinion privilege existed against libel. After recounting the case history and the court's recent rulings in libel cases, Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote for the majority that the statement from a previous case, Gertz v. Robert Welch, that I mentioned earlier, was not intended to create a wholesale defamation exemption for anything that might be labeled opinion, since expressions of opinion may often Im- may imply an assertion of objective fact. In the publication referenced in the case it found strongly suggested that Milkovitch perjured himself and was not couched hyperbolically, figuratively, or in any way. that would mean the writer didn't seriously mean it. In other words, the column writer presented himself as serious when he was making those accusations. And since the statement could easily be found true or false by comparing Milkovitch's statements and the hearing with his court testimony, in which the column did not do so, It was moot, whether it was intended as opinion or not, since it asserted a matter of objective fact. The connotation that petitioner committed perjury is sufficiently factual to be susceptible of being proved true or false, the court concluded. It's a rather complicated case, but you can find some links on my blog which also highlight some more of the points and offer the exact text of the case. Okay, now to the last part of the First Amendment which is the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, I found this article at loc.gov, and I think it explains things pretty well. You can find the link to the article and the citations on my blog if you want to read further. The First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States prohibits the United States Congress from enacting legislation that would abridge the right of the people to assemble peaceably, and the 14th Amendment makes this prohibition applicable to state governments. The Supreme Court of the United States has held that the First Amendment protects the right to conduct a peaceful public assembly. The right to assemble is not, however, absolute. Government officials cannot simply prohibit a public assembly at their own discretion, but the government can impose restrictions on the time, place, and manner of peaceful assembly, provided that constitutional safeguards are met. Time, place, and manner restrictions are permissible so long as they are justified without reference to the content of the regulated speech, are narrowly tailored to serve a significant government interest and leave open ample alternative channels for communication of the information. Such time, place, and manner restrictions can take the form of requirements to obtain a permit for assembly. The Supreme Court has held that it is constitutionally permissible for the government to require that a permit for an assembly be obtained in advance. The government can also make special regulations that impose additional requirements for assemblies that take place near major public events. In the United States, the organizer of a public assembly must typically apply for and obtain a permit in advance from the local police department or other local governmental body. Applications for permits usually require, at a minimum, information about the specific date, time, and location of the proposed assembly and may require a great deal of more information. Localities can, within the boundaries established by Supreme Court decisions interpreting the First Amendment, impose additional requirements for permit applications such as information about the organizer of the assembly and specific details about how the assembly is to be conducted. The First Amendment does not provide the right to conduct an assembly at which there is a clear and present danger of riot, disorder, or interference with traffic on public streets, or other immediate threat to public safety or order. Statutes that prohibit people from assembling and using force or violence to accomplish unlawful purposes are permissible under the First Amendment. After reviewing all the case law and opinions provided by the various courts, I find it hard to believe that organizations such as Antifa, are still seeking protection under the First Amendment. Well, I actually don't find it hard to believe, since I consider that particular group a terrorist organization. I will provide a public link on my blog offering more information on that group, but I won't glorify them further by detailing their cowardly rituals and violent uprisings. Now, the last part of the First Amendment states, Petition the government for a redress of grievances. I don't think this requires much explanation, but it basically protects our rights to make complaints to or seek assistance from the government without being punished. Well, that's all for this broadcast. basically covered the First Amendment in a nutshell and tried to give you some more food for thought on researching and finding out more about what that amendment actually means rather than what you hear or what you assume if you haven't done your research. I'd love to hear your comments, your feedback, and your suggestions. You can also find me on both Podbeam and Blog Talk Radio. And I'd love for you to connect with me on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks again for stopping by.